James Bond. Japanese proverbs say, bird never make nest in bare tree. Just a slight stiffness coming on. Your cellos are studied various. I'm just up here at Oxford, brushing up on a little Danish. Do you know what I can do with my little finger? Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole, episode 23. This is the wonderful weekly podcast where we waffle on with a winsome warmth with regard to the watchable, weathered, world-weary warrior who has a weakness for wages, watchers, and women. Yes, it's the wisecracking wild card worthy of worship, James Bond. 007. Thank you very much indeed for joining us in the cubby hole today. A warm welcome back to returning cubbies and equally warm welcome to any new listeners. Uh, we hope you're doing well wherever you're listening from. Uh, for all we know, you could be situated in a, an intriguing Bond location, perhaps on a nuclear submarine, in a North Korean jail cell, in a remote Scottish mansion, or maybe even in space. I mean, oddly, that would be the, the best place for an internet connection, I suppose. But uh, wherever you are, we appreciate you tuning in. Do consider giving us a little review on your podcasting website of choice just to let us know you're enjoying the content and to help us expand our reach to Bond fans such as yourself. We are, of course, nearing the end of our reviews of the official Bond films. So if you haven't already, you have the luxury of going back through the cubbyhole archives and listening in whichever order you please. But you're not confined to podcasting platforms. It'd be great to connect with you over social media too. So do check out our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages for show updates, quizzes, and much, much more. As ever, if you have a Bond question or topic you'd like us to discuss, do get in touch with the show via email, rogermorescubbyhole at gmail.com. And we'll try to fit you into a Q branch, i.e. the questions branch segment at the end of a future episode. Now, looking back at our previous episode, though, we discussed Bond number 22, Quantum of Solace, arguably the worst entry in the series, despite Mark Forster's best laid plans to include the four elements of earth, fire, air and water. How, how did that possibly go wrong? But uh, can Bond recapture his momentum going into uh, Daniel Craig's third Bond outing? This week, we'll go into the world of Skyfall. Bond 23. As usual, they stand tall and face it all together. It's the Cubbyhole hosting team. Firstly, it's the man who's strong in will and isn't made weak by time and fate, an exemplar of British fortitude. It's Adam. How are you, Adam? I'm very good. Thank you, Martin. Slightly concerned that I think you've quoted the words of a, an obituary at me, so I don't know if I've not got too long left to go, but otherwise very good. Uh, and looking forward to Skyfall, Bond's, I think, his first ever completely unproblematic trip to Asia. Uh, we've talked a little bit before about he always seems to get into hot water um, politically when he goes to Asia. Uh, and even Tomorrow Never Dies, which was okay for most of the film, we then get Jonathan Price doing that very strange uh, takeoff of, um, of what Karate looks like uh, so yeah i'm very good and looking forward to this uh, this podcast okay very nice and secondly it's the man who's barely held together by his pills and his drink and don't forget his pathetic love of country i guess fittingly for this episode that country would be scotland how are you phil yes i'm very well thank you martin um thank you for the uh, the warm welcome huge thanks to everyone for their shout outs on our social media channels um, John from Behind the Stunts, who um, has often um, contributed um, to our kind of stunt information, um, wanted to let us know there is quite an important um, bit of trivia to this film. We've kind of extolled the virtues of uh, stuntman Dave, uh, David Cronley, um, in previous episodes. 
you may not know though that Skyfall is actually his final Bond appearance as a stuntman. So, um, so he actually started 17 years previously in Goldeneye, um, and this is to be David Cronley's final appearance as a Bond stuntman. So, if you are listening to the show, do raise a toast to, to stuntman Dave, and if you are watching Skyfall, do keep an eye out for him. Yeah, worth mentioning, we couldn't actually spot Stuntman Dave at all in this one, uh, despite Phil's previously incredibly eagle-eyed um, knack of finding him and his, his Christoph Waltz uh, likenesses in any Bond film. So if uh, Stuntman Dave, or indeed anyone does spot Stuntman Dave in Skyfall, please do let us know exactly where that is. I was going to say that it's a bit suspicious that uh, Stuntman Dave, David Cronley, finishes with Skyfall. So he's not actually in the film with Christoph Waltz. It's a bit suspicious to me. Are they the same person? You can continue your theory if you wish, Phil. Yeah, that's true. Have you yeah. ever seen Christoph Waltz and Stuntman Dave in the same room at the same time? We'll, we'll have to keep an eye out on, uh, on Spectre in the next week to see if, if they're actually one and the same. Okay, so on with today's episode. It's Skyfall, so it's over to Adam and Alan. What do they have for us in the synopsis? Thank you very much. So Skyfall, the 23rd James Bond film, released to coincide with the 50th anniversary of the release of Doctor No back in 1962. It's the first of two consecutive films to be directed by Sir Sam Mendes. It's Daniel Craig's third outing as James Bond. And a whole wave of new, pretty much uh, blue-chip, top-draw talent has come along for the ride. Roger Deakins on cinematography, Thomas Newman composing the score, and uh, the celebrated writer John Logan joins Neil Purvis and Robert Wade on the script. So Skyfall was released in October 2012. That's a full 24 years after Pierce Brosnan's breakout film performance in the action classic Taffin. Then maybe you shouldn't be living here! Skyfall was made on a budget of $200 million and it went on to gross $1.109 billion. And this is humongous. Adjusted, it breaks the record, which has stood since Thunderball in 1965. And it's also the first Bond film since Thunderball to win an Oscar, Adele claiming the award for Best Original Song for the title track. So to find out why it made all that money, let's hand over to Alan. Where's the bloody gun barrel? Bond and money penny action hero rip up Istanbul chasing a very ill-advised hard drive of undercover spies' names. But money penny action hero shoots Bond, who surely dies from an insanely high fall. QV Adele, have the scaffold. M stares out at rainy London looking moody before Lord Voldemort tells her she's getting sacked, while Bond, who's inexplicably alive and enjoying a Heineken and scorpion fueled gap year, breaks into M's pad again to return to work, where he makes a total muggings of his assessment tests and stares at some artwork with Paddington Q. What were you expecting? An exploding pen? In Shanghai, Bond off's darkly handsome assassin Patrice in front of a techno jellyfish, gets a Sweeney Todd experience from Moneypenny action hero, fights a Komodo dragon in Macau, and creepily infiltrates leggy triad Hooker Severin in the shower. She takes him to meet flirty, rat-obsessed Spanish overdresser Raul Silva. They don't eat coconut anymore. Now they only eat rat. Who wastes some priceless whiskey before Bond captures him. Back in London, M and Silver stage an Amdram remake of Silence of the Lambs before she goes off to spout Tennyson at Parliament. But Silver escapes, and Bond and M barely escape after chasing Silver across a not-that-busy-for-rush-hour London underground. They drive off in the Aston, and Bond threatens to red-button M. Oh, go on then, eject me. See if I care. 
they head up to Bond's decrepit Scottish family seat Skyfall, where they dig up His Royal Highness Albert Finney. Welcome to Scotland. And Macaulay Culkin the shit out of the place. Bond gets so mad when his Aston explodes that he blows up bloody everything and finally knifes Silver in the chapel. But Her Majesty Dame Judi Dench doesn't make it. Bond cries and Finney takes his hat off. M bequeaths Bond her favourite Churchill nodding dog figurine. Money Penny action hero takes a desk job and the new M's Lord Bloody Voldemort. The end. Thanks a lot, Adam and Alan. Uh, so Skyfall, I guess that's uh, that's where we start. Are we are we a thousand miles and poles apart in our opinions? I suspect not for this one. For me, this film is a great return to form after the disappointment of Quantum of Solace. I think we're in uh, in safe hands with Sam Mendes. Apparently his favourite Bond film was uh, From Russia With Love, so you know he's got uh, good taste and obviously a very good director. I'd say this one, for me, it feels very cin- uh, cinematic. I think the cinematography by Roger Deakins is probably one of my favourite aspects of the film. Uh, but when you're watching that one, uh, just on my my very old DVD, uh, perhaps it doesn't come through quite as you would want it to uh, at home. So uh, I'd actually say that my my memories of watching this at, at the cinema are slightly better than, uh, than what, uh, when I'm watching it at home. I'm not sure whether it really fully comes through. But nevertheless, I still think it's uh, an excellent addition to the, uh, the Bond franchise uh, and uh, great to see Daniel Craig back to form with uh, this one. What did you think, Phil? Yeah, absolutely. I'd agree, Martin. I think that um, particularly looking back at um, the previous episode with Quantum of Solace, this is, this is kind of the polar opposite of of that film you know it's in terms of the cinematography it's real artistry in certain points of the the way that the scenes are shot and it does what all good bond films should do it's that blend of the narrative being really solid and really strong it's the blend of really great action scenes that use real threat and violence within them that that are balanced with um, you know, moments of great tenderness. And I, I just think this again, we've we've spoken kind of before in previous episodes, the fact that when a Bond film has kind of gone off the rails a bit, there's always needed to be a film that's kind of put it back into into line and that's kind of built put it back on course. And I think Skyfall does that superbly. It's very interesting because you're right, it is a soft reboot was very much needed after Quantum of Solace. But look at Solace in quant in context as well. That comes out in 2008. And also in that year, The Dark Knight and Iron Man both come out. And this really is the year where the current franchise culture of mainstream cinema the big tentpole releases which are incredibly identical released very very frequently and bond acknowledges that it can't keep up with that and it goes in completely the opposite direction and decides okay we're going to make people wait for each film and we're going to auteur each one we're going to get really stylish intellectual interesting directors to come in and helm them and so what you get in in skyfall for me is something that kind of takes what was really radical about the previous two films but marries it back to something that resembles a much more traditional bond adventure Uh, and so it's this big action epic but it's also an art house meditation on bond himself both the character and what a Bond film even is. It's kind of really, in the same way, I guess, that Goldeneye was, it's deconstructing its place now in the world and asking, is there still a role for this franchise and this character? And of course, the answer is a resounding yes. But it does that in a film which is so elegant and sophisticated. It's a film that in various places, like with Honor Majesties, just gives me shivers from just how well it's been staged and just how affecting certain moments are. 
one thing for me in this film is the fact of the use of colours. I think it's really important the way that there's this blend of, you know, the different filters that are used in the actual filming of it. So, you know, you get those vibrant blues when it's the fight sequence in um, Shanghai when Bond is fighting um, Patrice um, in the, the skyscraper. And, you know, you get these really great sort of oranges and, and different colours in, in the opening sequences in Istanbul. I think it's a great way that it sort of, it just it just makes something feel so vibrant and it feels so much more exciting. Yeah, I'd go along with that. I think the uh, the colours are just magnificent, aren't they? In some places, like the the fight scene in Shanghai up in the tower, the silhouetted figures fighting, um, and then of course at the end where we get silver, the backdrop of the uh, the exploded house mansion, and that that red light kind of glowing in the darkness. Uh, See, so yeah, I'd definitely go along with that, Phil. I think uh, interestingly, I saw one bit of trivia was that uh, it had never rained in a James Bond film until Casino Royale, apparently. And of course, we do get some rain in this one as well. So it seems to fit the tone, doesn't it, of the of the Craig era? Yeah, that's absolutely right. This isn't like how Martin Campbell directed Goldeneye and Casino Royale. It's not fast and quick and energetic. It is slower. It's more mournful and melancholic and meditative. Uh, and Deakins is, for those who don't know, he is pretty much the best cinematographer in the world. He works regularly with the Coen brothers uh, and, and has won Oscars recently for Mendez's most recent film, 1917, and uh, Blade Runner 2049. But you're right, the colours in this are so rich and the look of the film is so velvety. It almost recalls what Terence Young and his cinematographer Ted Moore did in the very earliest James Bond films. Um, but also what's great is that every shot in the film, because he's using longer shots, has an idea. We see Bond as a kind of blur as he first appears. And throughout the film, he is kept in the shadows. He appears sort of shrouded in darkness, which, of course, completely fits what the script is saying about he is an agent working in the shadows. That's where the war against, you know, villainous forces now is. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree, Adam. I think you get that from the very, very start of the film as well. You know, we've mentioned things like on The Majesties where it's, it's the stylization is is throughout. And I think that, again, this tries to distance itself from, from what we saw in Quantum, where it's sort of that film kind of started really well and then kind of went downhill. In this one, there's there's sort of, it builds and builds and builds, which is what every bond, good Bond film should do. Quantum feels very close to um, the old Bourne films, whereas this one doesn't. This one's completely separate from that this one feels much more like a bond film because of the way that it's put together and i, I think that we owe a lot of credit to, to sam mendes and to the the production team for for realizing that they can't make a carbon copy of other films they need it needs to have its own identity well yeah i think the uh the problem with quantum was that they couldn't maintain a shot could they for more than a couple of seconds so it's difficult to tell a story when when you've got that kind of uh, editing but uh, yeah this one's certainly the polar opposite and uh should we, i don't know should we move on should we go to the the pre-title sequence adam you mentioned uh, the start of it is quite good bond in the shadows um i i quite like that we kind of get bond in the middle of a mission as well uh, and i like that we get uh, m's personality coming through the uh, the, the communication device as well she certainly has no compunction in allowing her agents to die with uh, poor old Ronson sitting slouched on the uh, the, the chair but uh, I think it's a really action-filled uh, introduction and we're, we're back in Istanbul of course linking together with uh, many of the previous Bond adventures maybe M slightly annoying isn't she over the uh, over the comms saying what's going on what's going on <laughs> just, just let us get on with it 
Well, what is very good about uh, the intercutting with them is the same thing that's good about when we cut between the Situation Room and Bond in Russia in uh, Tomorrow Never Dies, i.e. what we get from M's input from the distance is all the context of what's really going on in this action sequence, and it raises the stakes. Uh, and it's a sequence which is a classic escalation of action within a Bond set piece, and it's kind of one man on a stealth mission. We turn into a car chase, we turn into a bike chase across the rooftops, but of course then it collapses in on itself and it becomes just two men fighting on the top of the roof of a train. And in that way, it's also very similar to all the Nassau scenes in Casino Royale in that it actually completely predicts and tells you what's going to happen in the rest of the film. But then we go to those incredible titles as well after that, which are full of blood and fire and tombstones. And so just the shock of bad ending going into that incredibly dark and brooding title song and sequence, it sets us up for where this film is going to go. Yeah, I'd agree, Adam. I think just going back to your point about the the car chase that we see as well, I was going to mention this in the Cars and Gadget sequence, but I think we owe a lot of credit to Gary Powell, who was the, um, the stunt coordinator um, for the film. So, you know, not just the vehicle stunts, but also the um, sort of the fight sequences as well. Um, but when you actually look at that chase as well, there is a great use of realism in that because obviously a lot of the close-up shots are of um, Money Penny as she's driving the Land Rover. Now, the way they shot that was actually to get um, what's known as like an external cage on the Land Rover. So it was literally like a roll cage built outside the car. Um, and it's actually former Top Gear Stig, Ben Collins, who was driving those sequences. But it allowed, obviously, um, Naomi Harris as Moneypenny was obviously then able to do dummy shots of make it look like she was driving the car when obviously it was actually Ben Collins doing the stunts. So it's that, it adds to that realism. There's that great sense that you feel that obviously Money Penny is actually driving the car, and that there's real jeopardy there. Obviously, when she's on the wrong side of the road and having to swerve around vehicles. Yeah, I think I was really impressed with the the bike stunt because that is such an unrealistic stunt, isn't it? Uh, flying the bike into the uh, the bridge, and he kind of uses that momentum to get onto the top of the train. Uh, but it it feels realistic, doesn't it? it feels like a, a brutal scene when he's uh, just clinging on by the by his fingertips uh, then that's nicely mixed together with the uh, the more brosnan style era of him jumping onto the carriage and adjusting his cuffs when he uh, when he changes cars so uh, yeah i think a uh, lovely little mixture there of different bond moments we established that this is a different Bond to the one we've seen in Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace. And Craig looks a lot older than he does in Quantum, even though it's only in real terms four years since. But this is an opening sequence that gets that he is now completely professional. He is James Bond 007 and probably has been for some time. And I think Craig's performance in this film really reflects that. He edges much closer to what Timothy Dalton was doing in this film, uh, you know, embracing that sense of world weariness of being kind of closer to the end of his career than the beginning which of course helps the film to go on and sort of ask the question of what place there is now for bond in this new world yeah no it's a what do you reckon to the chronology do you think it would be it is better to view casino royale as the the start of bond and then all of the other adventures before that come afterwards and then we get skyfall because it seems like uh, craig has gone from the beginning of his career to the end in only three movies i think i i heard one of the another bond reviewer say it's a bit like uh bit like having live and let die and then suddenly you cut very swiftly to a view to a kill 
Um, yeah, it is true, but I sort of don't mind that because it, it, it very, very deliberately cuts ties completely with the first two films and it moves us on entirely from what that situation was and where Bond was there. And actually, ironically, this film allows him to play out the arc that they were sort of going for in Quantum of Solace much more effectively, i.e., you know, after that opening sequence, he returns and he is a shell of himself. He's an absolute physical wreck. I mean, you know, various people call him that. I think this is probably the the first film for a long time where kind of Bond is almost always on the back foot in a sense. You know, M and Mallory both know that Bond is probably not fit for purpose, but they're probably of the opinion that he'll get killed in action anyway. In in a in the real world, he probably wouldn't be able to compete with Silver or any of his henchmen because he's, you know, he's physically unfit. They say that he's got substance addictions, you know, it's it kind of it, this is one of the films where it's kind of revealing a lot of his flaws and a lot of his um, you know, a lot of his demons as well. So I think it, it goes a lot more into the character of Bond, I think. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. It's also a film which is very much, from the screenplay upwards, it's haunted by the past. You know, this is a 50th anniversary Bond. This takes the legacy of the past 50 years and uses it to fuel the story. But this is the first film that really delves into Bond's childhood trauma and the role that it has also played in forming him. And it gives the character a kind of tragic inevitability in terms of he never had any choice other than to go down this route where every time he goes on a mission, like you say, Phil, it is life or death. I think all they're doing in terms of articulating here that they don't expect him to come back is just saying what was always implied in a Bond mission. They never know if he's going to come back. And also part of that being haunted by the past is what they do with the character of M, who almost kind of becomes the Victor Frankenstein to these two monsters who she has created. I mean, in a sense, she has played just as damaging a role in forming Bond as he is now and the wreck that he is that Vesper Lynn did in, uh, in Casino Royale. And this is a film that explores that. Uh, and makes Bond question her and what she has done to him. In order to uh, analyse Bond's psychology, we get that uh, word association game. That sounds a bit like one of our quizzes, doesn't it? Bond seemed to hold that in as much contempt as we do for Phil's car engine quiz. Yeah, I think that is one of the great secrets as well. The um, the moment where obviously the, uh, the psychologist says Skyfall, um, and obviously, you know, Bond reacts to that quite aggressively with with the sort of the it just says done and then just walks away you know it's again it's that building of the you know you don't really know where that scene's going at first because it's just you think well it's just another psychoanalysis of bonds we don't know what skyfall is until we get to the very end of the film and we get there so it's this sort of brooding mystery throughout the whole thing and then of course we realize it's the childhood home but also where bond learned of his parents death and there's that great scene between uh, judy dench and albert finney as kincaid where she learns the truth of what that moment was and how bond responded to it i.e literally went underground went into darkness for days and it brings a great honesty into that relationship between em and bond which is so well drawn between Dench and Craig in these films um, in that she sort of knows a little bit about his backstory. They discuss his orphanage when they first get to Scotland and he says, you know, the whole story. But actually, she doesn't know the whole story. And it's, it's a journey of discovery for her to learn the real truth behind this person who she values as this great agent, but hasn't perhaps ever really thought before of how she's affected him and, and what she was really dealing with and the human factor in spy terms of, of what people go through. Yeah, and I feel it works so well having the uh, the enemy, the main enemy in this film, being a, a former MI6 agent. We attacked Mark Forster uh, in Quantum of Solace for including Judy Dench's M a bit too much in the, uh, the storyline for 
for no reason. Uh, here, she does get a lot of screen time. Uh, apparently, she does get more screen time than Desmond Llewellyn got in his 17 Bond movies in, in Skyfall, uh, so that she is integral to the plot here. But it works so well because you've got Silver as the uh, the rogue agent, and uh, and she would be thinking about the psychological impact that she's had on Bond, considering Silver has gone uh, so bad. So uh, yeah, I think uh, it works brilliantly for me. Yeah, I'd agree. But I also think that everybody, I was actually put this in my notes, I think that everybody is just on top form in this film as well. Yeah, nobody puts in a duff performance. Nobody's kind of letting up, and it's that intensity of the acting and you know the brilliance of of everyone's individual performances playing off each other as well that makes it so brilliant. I think you know it's. I think we have to give a great amount of credit to the whole cast for the way that they put this together. You know, Naomi Harris is brilliant as the new Money Penny. Um, you know, obviously Daniel Craig reprising the role of Bond is brilliant as well. You know, he he takes the action sequences up to the next level. I think, and it's just everybody is is so committed to that role and it's it's just fantastic in my opinion i mean where this is much better in terms of how it uses m than forster is is that m is very much the leading lady in this one she is the lead female character she is the bond woman here and dench is this is her finest performance as m it is just a winning blend of sadness but fortitude and also fear that she's desperately trying to manage you know those scenes where she stands up to javier bardem you can see she's terrified. I mean, particularly in the chapel at the end and when she's interrogating him. But what's also very interesting is that both M and Bond in this become sort of emblematic and symbols of Britain as a Western moral crusader. And it's present in just how prevalent in the film the imagery of the British flag is. They both have scenes where they are deliberately flamed with the British flag everywhere. M when it's draped over the coffins of the men she's lost and she vows that she'll avenge them. And Bond at the very end uh, when he's sort of looking over the London skyline and there are flags of, of the Union Jack sort of everywhere. Uh, and so they're both being equated in that way. And that is the point of a quoting the Tennyson poem at the Inquiry, which is uh, from Ulysses. Um, it's a poem that is set after Ulysses in classical mythology has had his 10 year odyssey from the Trojan War back home. And it's the idea that he is now old and weathered and he's lost a few steps, but he is still proud and he is still strong and he is still a hero. We are not now that strength which in old days moved earth and heaven. That which we are, we are. One equal temper of heroic hearts, made weak by time and fate, but strong in will to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. There's a lot more focus on um, kind of the the not necessarily lower MI6 characters, but obviously we get a lot more interaction with characters such as Tanner in this film, and obviously we get the new quartermaster um, with Ben Whishaw um, playing the new Q. So it's it's quite interesting that they've they've taken this direction with adding these different characters in, and obviously giving them more more screen time as well. Particularly, I think uh, I like the way they've introduced Mallory as the new M. Uh, we don't just get a hard cut to uh, to Rafe Fiennes as M in the next film. Uh, he's gently eased into the uh, the role, but uh, I think uh, Rafe Fiennes an excellent replacement. And uh, in terms of uh, Money Penny, I think is uh, brilliantly handled as well. Again, instead of just having her in a random scene in the uh, MI6 office, she's introduced as the fellow junior agent who 
touches her earpiece the same as uh, another junior agent that Bond worked with in a previous adventure. Um, so I think it's really good that we get that introduction to her as uh, as potentially an equal to Bond. I can't remember when I first watched this film. I don't think I knew that it was Money Penny. Uh, so I'm not. I don't think I knew about it, and I think it was quite a nice reveal at the end where we get that exact replica of uh, M's office from uh, Doctor No. So uh, yeah, I think I really great. Uh, again, another brilliant part of the film is how they reintroduce these characters to the franchise. We haven't seen Money Penny and Q for a couple of films, and now we're bringing them back. But not just that, we're giving them a backstory. We are showing them as they are formed as those characters to give real weight and three dimensionality to their relationships with Bond. So obviously with Money Penny, we, we see her backstory as an agent, but we also have that great scene and it's the sexiest scene in the film and it's all done through physicality when she's giving him the shave with, uh, with the razor blade. It, it asks that question of did they or didn't they? And so it very deliberately sets up that kind of chemistry and that banter that obviously Bond and Money Penny will have going forward. And it's the same with, with Mallory, who again, only becomes M in the last scene, but he has a great development from what we think of at first as quite a slimy politician. We don't know if he's just going to be another Frederick Gray telling MI6 to stop going after the people who like, you know, he knows from his club or anything. But actually, you know, because of him taking a bullet and, and you know, going going into that action scene in uh, in the inquest, he, he is given a heroic resolve. And of course, he comes to understand Bond just as we come to understand Mallory, the character. And, and when he sort of is helping Tanner and Q send Silver up to Scotland, he's now completely bought into the necessity of MI6 in a way that he hadn't before. And actually, there's something about uh, Tanner is a very minor kind of non-character isn't he in this uh, Bond film and also in the previous ones as well he's kind of just Mr Exposition but there's something I don't know there's something a bit charming about the way that Rory Kinnear plays him I don't maybe I just I see myself in Rory Kinnear's performance that if I was in a Bond film that's who I would be that boring character and I, I did also quite like that uh, after the inquiry they managed to escape from Silver and he's kind of left behind when Bond goes off that reminiscent of um, the men with the golden gun when Bond is left behind by Lieutenant Hip. Uh, so I, I want to see an extra scene where Tanner is on a boat on the Thames and just bumps into Clifton James as uh, Sheriff J.W. But it is, but obviously, but also Tanner has that great moment where he actually helps them, you know, he protects her in the, the inquiry where obviously Silver is shooting at everyone. And, and it's that great moment where the kind of the, the desk so yeah, the bloke that's always behind the desk, the pen pusher, is kind of he comes good and obviously he protects um and obviously Mallory then takes a bullet for her as well. So you know it's it's the it's kind of that great duo they kind of come together when you need them most and that's what the great characters always do i mean there is actually an interesting thing in terms of how prestigious this film is and how blue chip the talent involved is that scene which is tiny with a uh, q and tanner and mallory when they're at the map sending silver on the wild goose chase that is actually a meeting of three of the great celebrated hamlets of their generation it just goes to show you at every level what you were saying earlier phil just how good the talent involved in this is and the fact that they're all bringing their a-game to it and rory Kinnear is as much a part of that as everybody else, even if he's in perhaps not the showiest of roles as a poor old Tanner. You don't even get a proper computer as a secretary. They're all on laptops. Well, I mean, Q does run into trouble with the laptop, doesn't he? That is one of the, the big plot holes of the film. Quite a few large plot holes in terms of Silver's 
plan that he, I mean, what has he planned for the last two years? He's planned exactly what's going to happen every second of that chase with Bond. Yeah, when you do look into it, it is extraordinary just how much Silver has planned. I mean, he's kind of, we talked about Kronstein, didn't we? And just how much of the film that he seems to have been able to see in advance. I mean, Silver's that and then some. He knows he's going to get captured, put in that room underground he'll be able to get on those exact trains on the London Underground. And he even knows that M's going to be summoned to a parliamentary inquiry on that day um, a couple of years in advance, all to kind of assassinate her. And you just think, hang on, Bond's broken into her flat very easily twice. Why don't you just why don't you just do that? Just just go into a home at night and just, just offer with a pillow or something. We do get similar things happening when they eventually do get to Skyfall at the end. Like he sends in an army of goons at the beginning who presumably he hasn't given the speech about not not to touch her she's mine she, she he tells that to the second round of goons but the first round have already shot her that's eventually what kills her isn't it well again as as we find out in the next film obviously silver is part of uh, uh, obviously the specter organization do you think that specter's hr team are having an off day um when when obviously silver was out to get his revenge do you think that they'd not really briefed him on on how to to do his briefings for his hitmen all of this, of course, shouldn't take away from the fact that um, Silver is, I think, one of the great Bond villains of the lot. And I think as played by Javier Bardem, who is just fantastic in this. I mean, he's kind of doing Hannibal Lecter meets Quentin Crisp, the naked civil servant. I mean, on the one hand, that same malevolence and sort of genuinely sinister edge that he brought to Shugur in uh, No Country for Old Men, of course. But also that brilliantly flamboyant camp homoerotic um, humour, which is always there as a kind of undercurrent in some of the Bond villains but here he's, he's properly undressing Bond he's giving him goose pimples he's doing a very sort of camp oh Mr Bond when we sort of have that very brief glimpse into what may or may not have happened in Bond's old Etonian days um, but it's so great what he does in this and again going back to Emma's Frankenstein he is very much Frankenstein's monster you know he has that physical deformity he has almost the look of a Frankenstein in the size of him but also he has the same motivation. He is on this revenge mission to kill his creator. Yeah, I think you also get that great moment um, when M comes face to face with him. And obviously, you know, it's these two kind of great minds, kind of obviously M being the, the boss and obviously Silver being this kind of loose cannon as an agent. But, you know, you get that great, really tense moment where he's, again, in the kind of Hannibal Lecter um, prison cell. Um, but it's just that that horrific point where obviously he's, he's all he's doing is talking about the fact he tried to take the cyanide pill in when he was captured, and it's almost that sense of you know look at what you did to me this this was your creation you know it's and obviously he uses the mother analogy to suggest that you know it's kind of he was almost her child almost in a way because she molded him so much, and you get that great payoff where obviously he removes his fake um, dentures and obviously you see his face kind of crumble. And again, we've kind of mentioned um, the the use of kind of ropey CGI in past Bond films, but this is where I, I assume it was CGI and, and kind of visual effects that we used to to get that effect of his face. Um, and it's just a really great way they set that all up because you're not expecting it to go that way. Yeah, I think the uh, the face was CGI, Phil, but apparently he did have to use some form of dentures. And then at the end, one of the final scenes, apparently the chopper blew the dentures out causing much hilarity on the set so they should have kept that in the film i think that would have added some more comedy to the to the character uh, but yeah i think i did bardem just a marvelous actor i think plays plays it really really well 
Um, I'd, I'd say I think he's so terrifying in uh, his character in No Country for Old Men that it's kind of a step down um, when we first see him in this film. Um, I, I guess I wasn't too impressed with the the first scene. I know some people are very impressed with the way that he kind of walks in and I, the speech is excellent, uh, but I'm not sure whether uh, maybe a bit too camp for my liking. I, I like the undercurrent of uh, homoeroticism that we got with Le Chiffre in Casino Royale. I think I prefer that to uh, the very direct homoeroticism of, uh, of this character. Uh, but yeah, as it, as it progresses, I think uh, the, the character of Silver just gets better and better. Oh, I disagree with you entirely there, Mark. I think that opening scene with Silver's amazing. I think it's one of the best scenes in the film. And again, it's Mendez's direction. He's using long shots, not just to tell the story visually, but to really give the performances time to breathe. It's one unbroken shot of this character going from a blur into the foreground. And I love the campness he brings to it because it's different, therefore, from Chigurh. There's no point kind of doing that again. He's he's done that so well elsewhere, but he has to go in a little bit more of a comical direction. But I think that flamboyant buoyance makes him scarier because it gives him that ego and that showmanship of the great Bond villains and so I, I just think that whole speech is brilliant I could imagine Christopher Walken having a good go at that speech you want to catch rats on an island you get a drum put a coconut in it they fall in then they eat each other all the rats are possessed eating all the coconut but now they don't eat coconut they only eat other rats that's you and me Mr Bond we're both rats it's scary because you don't really know where it's going. I think that's why it makes it so intimidating because obviously Bond isn't, there's no advantage for him. He's kind of he's strapped to a chair and he can't, obviously he has no gadgets to be able to escape. And obviously Silver can do whatever he likes. You know, that's probably the most horrendous torture is the, the psychological sense that, you know, Silver isn't intending to use any violence against him. It's all, all the psychological stuff. And that's where Javier Bardem, it's, uses that so well is is sort of um you know so ruthless in that character portrayal oh we also have a nice i was going to say we've got a nice anagram as well for you adam think on your sins apparently is an anagram of your son isn't in hk hong kong being the background of these characters so some people have alluded that perhaps or some people have suggested perhaps the character is m's son Although I'm not sure, um, Judy Dench doesn't play it in that way, I don't think. It, but it kind of fits with the character that she's a motherly figure to these, to these agents. Yeah, I think it certainly fits in that they're both very much probably orphans. I think you read that into both of them, the fact that they're very similar and both her creations. And, and from that point of view, certainly adopted sons, I would think. I think also a, a character that we haven't talked about yet uh, is Severin. And I give Berenice Marlowe a lot of credit for her performance because also what makes Silver very frightening in this film is her reaction to him and just watching her as his, someone who's going to lead Bond to him react as she thinks of him and thinks of the consequences of betraying him and bringing Bond to him, just from the sheer amount of terror that is just running and just about to boil over the surface of that character, that also sets us up for how scary and and, and how evil that uh, that Silver is. But she gets that in her performance. And, and I think even though it's probably not the strongest character that we've ever seen in a Bond film, I think she's given just enough in the script to really sell her scenes in, in quite a memorable and brilliant fashion. I also think that the the moment where she gets shot as well, obviously when um, Silver kills her, I think that is a, an extremely emotive scene. You know, the fact that, again, we've already mentioned that, you know, Bond is kind of rusty in the field and he's, he's got these, these kind of antique guns, so it's going to 
limit your accuracy anyway because they're not going to be rifled and they're not going to have the same accuracy as his Walther. And it's just this great sense that, you know, that the kind of bond is always on the back foot and it's he's put in this situation where he, he kind of can't win really. And it just makes it such an emotive ending when, with that, that sequence where obviously where Severin is shot so brutally because, you know, you kind of, you get the sense that she deserved better really. You kind of get the sense that she should have been able to escape. But again, we're in the bond universe where often it's, it's the good people that get killed the first. So it's, it's it's a very very brutal landscape, but it's it's filmed it's filmed very 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 well, I think. Yeah, I'd certainly go along with that, Phil. I think the, I think maybe Severin's character is everything that Lupe should have been in *License to Kill*. The uh, the trapped woman who Bond needs to try and save, and obviously ultimately doesn't in this case. I, I really enjoy all of that scene actually in the in the casino. Of course, Bond doesn't play any cards, and we don't get any good old Texas Hold'em in this film, but uh, I think the whole of that scene is really good. We get the perceptive nature of Bond. I really love the uh, the little whisper that Craig does, like when she's about to go away and he says that he knows when a woman's pretending to be uh, to be strong and actually she's not. Uh, so I think, uh, I, think it, I think both of them perform excellently in that one. Uh, then we kind of get a bit of a, an odd Star Wars moment, the rancor pit of uh, Komodo dragons and Bond escaping. Um, that way. Um, a very strange link is that uh, the guy from the Rancor Pit in Star Wars, Paul Brook, has appeared in James Bond as Bunky in For Your Eyes Only. Who, who is Bunky in For Your Eyes Only? I think he's playing a card game against Bond and like a woman comes behind him and says, you should, you should bet a bit more. Oh no! I re- hang on. I think I remember him. Is it is it that guy with the lazy eye um, who um, mm. uh, Countess Liesel's? Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I remember him. Yeah, because I'm sure I've seen him in something else, but I didn't realize it was Star Wars. But yeah, he's the he's the Rancor guy in Return of the Jedi. Yeah. Oh wow. We'll have to we'll have to get him on for an interview. He'd, he'd be well good. Um, I think also the, the the Rancor pit is is another great expression of actually like Dalton. Daniel Craig gets humour out of the role not through the one-liners, which he's always a bit awkward with, but through reactions. The two he has to the Komodo dragon are the biggest laughs in the film. The other thing to say um, just on that casino scene between Bond and Severin is how good the writing is in this film. It's so much more textured and rich and layered than they obviously had time to do with Quantum of Solace. Um, but this is it's a fantastic dialogue scene. The whole backstory and the dark history of Severin's character is given very briefly and very succinctly but with real haunting power and the change in her composure as she goes through the various emotions of that scene starting as this icy femme fatale to finally the sort of shaky foundations of hope that Bond could actually rescue her from this situation she goes through that absolutely brilliantly it's a great little arc for the character I can help you I don't think so let me try Bring me to him. Can you kill him? Yes. Will you? Someone usually dies. <laughs> Perhaps you can. So yeah, so of course, we've mentioned kind of a lot of this film's build-up um, and, you know, and how it sort of pays off in the end. Of course, we have to really mention the ending. Now, obviously, this is probably one of the most emotive finales 
really going back to kind of on the Manchester's really with the payoff, I think, in my opinion. I'm not sure what you guys think. I mean, would you agree? Would you say that obviously we see that M, um, you know, dies quite violently, really? You know, she gets shot. Um, and, you know, we don't really get the sense that she's been badly injured until, until she's at the chapel. But what do you guys think of the ending? Do you think it, it's deserving of probably one of the best? Oh, yeah, unquestionably, and, and certainly one of the most emotionally powerful. I mean, Bond famously did not cry when Tracy was killed in Honor Majesties. I guess the shock of the situation. In this one, Daniel Craig is absolutely bawling. Uh, and, and, you know, it, I, I think it's just stunningly played from the both of them, and it really hits you and sends the shivers. And Thomas Newman's score as well, that little light motif, which is kind of very slow, sombre horns, uh, which, which kind of recurs with them throughout the film. It all just comes together into such a tender, brilliant scene there. And of course, it comes after that that sort of Home Alone Straw Dogs finale, um, which, you know, we talked about the, the finale action sequences of Bond not being spectacular, really, since Tomorrow Never Dies. This one's the first one that really makes a virtue of being a smaller scale, the fact that it feels much more intimate and brutal. But also that big, empty, desolate landscape, the graves outside the church, the fact that the mansion itself is kind of crumbling, it all predicts that death sequence there's an aura of the sepulchral surrounding it and you know Judy Dench is now over 80 I mean she would have been in her late 70s when she made this and is on her what seventh I guess Bond film she can't carry on forever what an amazing way to bow out of the role I mean so much better than Bernard Lee got you know who obviously just died between Moonraker and Fiora's Eyes Only and kind of just vanishes if you are going to lose a much loved and just outstanding cast member this is the way to do it. Make it a huge part of the story and make it a brilliant, dramatic payoff when it happens. Yeah, I think brilliantly put there, Adam. I think I can't add too much to that. Uh, I think such a fitting ending for Judy Dench's M. I think, uh, Phil, you mentioned when we were talking about GoldenEye, you said it was a Judy Dench's kind of our M. Pretty much all of the films made in our lifetime, uh, we've had Judy Dench's RM and uh, just a, a great, powerful, emotional scene um, she plays it excellently, and uh, I think it just brings the film together. Great ending. It's the shock of it. Even though you suspect they might be going there, you don't quite think they're going to until she finally dies. And then you're just absolutely shattered by it. And again, it elevates the whole series to something beyond just an action franchise, but a great dramatic series with a real tragic dimension to it. And, and that's why Bond is truly so great. The fact that it can surprise you and shock you 50 years and 23 films in, you still don't see it coming. Makes you feel some anger towards Kincaid as well. What, turn the bloody torch off. You've lived there for 60 years. You can, I know it's dark, I know you're old, but you can get to that little chapel. Yeah, but they're quite doddery though, aren't they? You know, you, you get the feeling they probably need a, a, a few torches to be able to see where they're going. You know, he probably knew when he was a young lad where, where to go. But no, I, I agree with both of you. I think, I think the payoff we get from that series obviously where, where it kind of builds again because obviously when uh, when M gets shot, um, you think, oh, well, she, she might have just been my slightly wounded but she should be okay and then as it as it goes on and progresses and progresses you can kind of see her getting more weary and obviously she there's just that great scene where they're walking across the moor and it's just she takes her hand away from her side and obviously there's a lot more blood than she was expecting also then then that that's when the realism and the gravity of the situation kicks in and you think 
actually something else is happening here. I think shout out to Albert Finney as well as Kincaid. Uh, obviously, Finney is is a legend and, and passed away not so long ago. Um, but it's also a great bit of metatextual casting. He goes right back to the origins of the series in the 1960s because Finney and Connery both came through at that time when it was swinging London and the British sort of countercultural revolution in cinema. Both of them were part of that wave of working class actors who started to get big in film and theatre and kind of seized the reins from the, the sort of earlier aristocratic breed. So it was very much Finney and Connery and, of course, Tom Courtney, Richard Burton, Richard Harris, Peter O'Toole, all of those guys. And so getting one of them in for this role, again, it, it's the spectre of the past and the spectre of Bond's past, both as the film series and the character, is represented in getting Finney. I think if this film was Die Another Day, then it would have been Connery. The 40th anniversary just threw in as many callbacks as it could, couldn't it, without any regard for continuity or care for the series. But uh, I'm glad that they, I mean, as much as I would have loved to have seen Connery in the film, I'm glad. I think it was Mendes eventually that uh, that said maybe it would have been a step too far. And I think he's probably right. I'm, uh, I'm glad we didn't, because Connery is Bond, of course, so... I do think some of Kincaid's lines uh, with Connery delivering them would have been quite good, though. I mean, particularly, oh, you try and stop me getting involved, you jumped up little shit. And when he's showing him all the weapons, sometimes the old ways are the best. He pulls a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Scotland way. That's how you kill Silver. And of course, the welcome to Scotland line would have been perfect for him, wouldn't it? <laughs> Yeah, that, that might have made it feel a bit uncomfortably like a tourist board advert, though, wouldn't it? Welcome to Scotland. I don't live there. I live in Barbados because I don't like paying taxes, but you're welcome to Scotland. Enjoy the rain. Can you swim? Okay, so we'll move on over to our next segment now. So it's the Cars and Gadgets, Phil. We've got some uh, familiar-looking cars for this film. What have we got for Skyfall? Yes, that's Martin. So as we've already mentioned, this is um, the obviously the 50th anniversary of the film franchise starting. Um, and of course, there's no real other car to start with and obviously bringing back the Aston Martin DB5. This is the sixth Bond film to feature the car. Obviously, we'll also see it again um, eventually in No Time to Die. Um, obviously, for the 50th anniversary, they wanted to make this kind of, um, you know, a prevalent um, presence in the film. Um, so, interestingly, three DB5s were used for the filming, um, and there was one dummy chassis that was also used for the final gunfight. Um, incidentally, um, they did actually need Daniel Craig to do a lot of the close-up um, sort of scenes, obviously, where they're driving through Scotland and through parts of London. So they did need to take him out um, for a few quick test drives um, around Pinewood Studios before filming started. Um, incidentally, Gary Powell, the stunt coordinator, stunt coordinator, said this was probably one of the most nerve-wracking times of his life, simply because of the fact that the insurance company was so reluctant for Craig to actually drive a car that was worth probably in the region of about three or four million dollars. So it's, you know, it's not cheap cars at all. Um, so that fortunately, he didn't have to drive it too often. So it was only really the close-up shots. In those opening sequences, we also see that the um, the bike chase used Honda CRF 250R, um, and in this case, police bikes. 
these are actually motocross bikes that were heavily converted to look more like kind of sports tourers that you would see um, kind of police officers using. Um, but obviously to do the kind of demanding rooftop chase that we see where obviously Bond uh, flies through open windows and, and different sequences, they had to use motocross bikes simply because of the fact that the suspension is designed for obviously more off-road use. And it was easier for them to do some of those sequences where they're sort of riding upstairs and riding across rooftops. So this is obviously the, the opening scene between Patrice and Bond. The other kind of key car that gets used in the film is the Jaguar XJ, the long wheelbase version. Now this is prevalent because it's it's kind of, at this time in history, this is kind of one of the go-to cars for kind of world leaders. So it's, it's understandable that M probably would have access to an armored um, Jaguar XJ. And obviously we get that great payoff where Bond um, effectively steals it and then um, runs away effectively and obviously gets them to safety. Again, with the gadgets, we're going very much back to basics. So we get that great interaction between Q and Bond at the National Gallery where he basically gives him the Walther PPKS. Um, a great little reference back to License to Kill with the fingerprint recognition. Um, so obviously it's, it's designed for Bond only and also the radio transmitter. So these are kind of, Bond is very much back to basics. He's not got the, you know, the gadget-laden equipment that you'd normally expect. Oh, I just wanted to ask, what do, you, what do you think of Ben Whishaw as Q? For me, he's like a great antithesis to what Desmond Llewellyn and John Cleese did. Uh, but he's also similarly comic relief in that he, he is this sort of quite arrogant anoraki gadgets whiz, despite the fact that he probably shouldn't be one. I mean, Desmond Llewellyn was so kind of bumbling that you, you're almost a bit like, I can't believe this guy's in charge of this high tech technology. And similarly with Whishaw, he, he's kind of a bit geeky and he's a bit afraid of flying. And yet he's in charge of all these things. So it's kind of a similar but different thing they're doing. And I just wondered um what you what you made of him yeah i, I quite like ben Wishaw's portrayal of of q in this film you know again as you say you get this kind of more geeky style to him but i think i think that's that's more reflective of what a modern q would be you know there's great little moments where he's got the scrabble mug and he's sort of drinking his tea from that you know these great little moments where he turns around and sort of asks the rest of his department and they're all sort of spectacles um you know computer geeks are all on their laptops i mean i wouldn't be against a return of sharon the tea lady I think there's still a place for her in MI6 somewhere. We don't need her. This Q makes his own tea in his Scrabble mug. I like that he's, he's as open to um, internal you know, inquiries in Q branch as Desmond Llewellyn was by plugging a terrorist uh, laptop into the mainframe of MI6. I mean, that's as bad as anything Desmond got up to. OK, so we'll, we'll go over now to our next segment, which is Beyond the Book, a return of this segment. Of course, there's no Skyfall novel. So what do we have beyond the book, Adam? Cause the writing's on the wall. Thanks very much. So we are looking this week at television adaptations of Bond Beyond the Book because 2012 saw the release of two original Bond productions. One was Skyfall and the other was Happy and Glorious. Directed by Danny Boyle, still the only bit of Bond he's directed, this starred Daniel Craig and the Queen uh, parachuting into the London Olympic ceremony in Union Jack Parachutes. Uh, I'm sure we all remember this. Apparently the Queen only agreed to be in it in exchange for a speaking part and so probably wrote that line, Good evening, Mr Bond, herself. 
but also on television, um, this is where we see the very first adaptation of James Bond in the CBS series Climax. This was a drama anthology of book adaptations performed live on network television. And its third episode was a 60-minute adaptation of Casino Royale. Uh, $1,000 was paid to, paid to Ian Fleming for the rights, uh, and it aired on the 21st of October 1954 and starring as the very first James Bond, Barry Nelson as the American Jimmy Bond, nicknamed Card Sense. Um, other cast members included Peter Laurie, the great character actor from Casablanca as Le Chiffre. And uh, in this, Clarence Leiter is in fact British, so they switched the nationalities of both of those um, characters. There was no Rennie Mathis in this. Uh, Vesper was in fact renamed to Valerie Mathis. Uh, and helpfully before the show, a presenter gives a Baccarat lesson to explain the rules of the actual card game to viewers who might not have known back in the 50s. The other TV series for Bond, though, is, of course, James Bond Jr. We get to it at last. So this was inspired by a 1967 spin-off novel called The Adventures of James Bond Jr. 003 and a Half. Uh, Harry Saltzman first mooted the idea of a TV series of Bond in the 60s, but as it turned out, we would have to wait until September 1991 for this single series of 65 animated episodes. Uh, Corey Burton voiced uh, the nephew of James Bond, James Bond Jr., even though Bond's an orphan and an only child, so it's not really very canon. Uh, he adopted the new catchphrase, Bond, James Bond Jr., and it was all set at the Warfield Academy Prep School, where Bond goes up against scum, who are sort of spectre light. It stands for saboteurs and criminals united in mayhem, and whose Blofeld type uh, leader is Scumlord. Uh, other actual um, uh, villains which feature are ones that will go on to feature in the film. So in this TV series, Jaws is actually partnered with Knickknack obviously get the tallest and the shortest together. Uh, a young Dr. No and Goldfinger and Oddjob appear, as does Goldiefinger, the spoiled daughter of Goldfinger. Uh, they also created uh, original villains, including mad scientist Dr. Derange and his assistant Skullcap, and Barbea, or Barbella, a, uh, a hot-tempered female bodybuilder. Not sure how that would have gone across in a, in a kid's animated TV series. Uh, Bond is partnered by IQ, who is the grandson of Q, and Gordo Leiter, the son of Felix Leiter. So there it is. That is the potted history of James Bond on television, where he was adapted for the first time, but not very much since. It does feel a bit like a Scooby-Doo and Scrappy-Doo situation, doesn't it, with uh, Bond and uh, his nephew? Um, I think well, going back to the, the Queen's appearance, apparently the Queen... Uh, did uh, she wanted to be writing something at the beginning of that uh, 2012 Olympic scene? So uh, the, the original script had her just sitting doing nothing, and she wanted to be writing something. I'd have uh, respected her Madge a bit more if she'd have done Johnny English. That, maybe that's what we should do. Should have, have the Queen and Prince Philip in a Johnny English film. That would be great. That would. What where they have to stop Prince Andrew going to a Pizza Express? So we'll move on now to my segment, which is now I know you. secret agent that english secret agent from england this is the segment where i look through the other uh, callbacks to previous bond films this as we mentioned is the 50th anniversary bond thankfully we didn't get some of the ridiculous callbacks that we saw 
for the 40th anniversary tribute of, uh, of Die Another Day. Uh, but I'll go through some of, we've mentioned quite a few of them already in the episode, uh, but I'll just pick out a couple of ones that uh, that I've noted down. Uh, so some people have uh, pointed out the, the strong similarity between this film and The World Is Not Enough. Uh, the obvious one being the explosion at uh, MI6 headquarters and the subsequent relocation, but uh, also other key areas of the plot are fairly similar as well. We've got a villain on a revenge mission against M specifically, and uh, the villain uses Bond to get to M, and uh, also in other areas like the uh, Bond's car being destroyed by a helicopter and uh, the use of the Istanbul setting. Uh, also, this film continues the, uh, the long tradition of the Bond villain residing on an island lair. Uh, this is the, uh, the seventh villain of the official franchise where we've got uh, a villain on an island. Uh, I won't list all of them, I'm sure. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably know all seven. In terms of the main villain, Raoul Silva, of course, he's an ex-MI6 agent, and that's not the first time that's happened in the series. The uh, The biggest character previous to this, of course, was Goldeneye and Alec Trevelyan, played by Sean Bean. But we have also had other rogue agents in Die Another Day, Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace. So fairly the recent Bonds have uh, made use of this uh, rogue agent idea. Also, it's the second villain to die from a knife to the back, the first being uh, Aristotle Christatus in For Your Eyes Only. And uh, also, this is the, the first movie, interestingly, to have two separate train sequences. Uh, so, of course, it is the, uh, the first train sequence reminiscent of the, the fight atop the train of uh, Octopussy. Uh, but we have also had other train sequences in From Russia With Love, Live and Let Die, The Spy Who Loved Me and Goldeneye. It's the, the second time, only the second time, in which Bond has suffered a gunshot wound. Of course, he's been engaged in gunfights quite a lot, uh, but this is only the second time, the first being in Thunderball, uh, when he's being uh, chased down uh, the, uh, the Jukanoo. Uh, I always think it would be interesting uh, if the, the sailors at the dockyard of You Only Live Twice had some guns, he'd uh, certainly be a goner. Uh, would need that uh, very unrealistic chase. Uh, yeah, this is uh, also the uh, the third consecutive Bond movie in which he ends up alone at the end of the film. Uh, so quite a departure from those early Bond films where he's always uh, getting it on, uh, necking with a lady. Uh, so the the Craig Bond certainly uh, is a, a very cuts a lone figure at the end of the uh, the films. And uh, we also have uh, Raoul Silva does have the the alcohol that he uses to pour the shot, uh, the shot glass. Uh, that's on top of uh, Severine's head. Uh, the alcohol there has a label 1962, referring to the, the 50th anniversary, uh, of course, Dr. No being released in 62. And finally, in the, uh, the Macau casino scene, if you are very eagle-eyed, you'll notice that uh, a guy playing billiards in the background is none other than the actor Tom So, who played Fukutu, rather problematically named Fukutu, in Casino Royale. <laughs> So uh, those are the, some of the uh, the ones that I picked out for the uh, the callbacks. Uh, so I don't know what did you reckon, Adam and Phil? I think handled much better than Die Another Day this anniversary. Uh, no, I think you've covered them quite well, really, Martin. I think um, you know the the main one for me obviously is the fact that the Aston Martin bears the same number plate um, as the ones that we saw in Goldfinger and Goldeneye. So again, you've got that um, that return to the the previous films as well. 
Uh, but no, I think it was, you know, it was always important to do the sort of the retrospective look back to um, the old films. I think they did it really well. I mean, the knife in the back to Silver almost also made me uh, recall Octopussy when I, it's one of the knife throwing twins who is who is knifed by Bond. Uh, there's a lot of Octopussy in this film. Octopussy always comes up in this section quite a lot. They, they always go back and, and draw deep from the Octopussy well, as it were. Okay, very nice. So we'll go over now to the Kill Branch, our questions branch segment. What do we have this week, Phil? Answer my questions quietly, but clearly. Yes, I've actually had a few of these um, answered already in the podcast. So um, one of the interesting ones that came up, um, obviously, when M is writing Bond's obituary page, um, she mentions that it's CMG and RN after his name. Just want to put it out there. Do you guys, would you guys know what that means at all? That's I've never come across it myself. I, know it's putting I think you on the they spot are the. Slightly. I think it's the order of Saint Michael and and Saint George. Although I don't know what the exact. I know there's a joke. If anyone's watched uh, Yes Minister, the British political comedy, they they joke that uh, CMB means call me God, KCMB kindly call me God, and GCMB God calls me God. Uh, so that's the. <laughs> I thought that was uh, <laughs> an interesting. It's a good link back actually to the novel. I think Bond in the novel from Russia with Love is offered a KCMG, and he rejects it because he doesn't want to be a public figure, which I guess is quite different to the uh, the films where he is a famous spy. What was the second one? Sorry, RN. That's yes, presumably... RN. It's presumably his rank then, isn't it? His military rank, because Royal Navy is presumably RN. He's from the Navy. Could CMG be commander, group commander in some sense? I always thought it was he, it was his military rank and where he's come from, been recruited from. Yeah, it could be, actually. That's a good point. Um, so that's probably the link to it. But the last um, question we had through was actually um, based on a, an article that came through recently. So there are suggestions that we could see another Scottish Bond um when obviously when Daniel Craig put, holds up the reins for the role of Bond, would we want to see another Scottish Bond in the role, or would um, would you want to see you know kind of a different nationality of actor? Or well, of course, in the novels, Bond was only made Scottish um, at the time Sean Connery took the role on because he wasn't obviously as Ian Fleming had ever imagined the character, but then rather liked what Connery was doing in the end, and so decided to alter it in canon. I don't think Bond has to be Scottish. I don't know who exactly they're mooting there. Presumably Richard Madden of the bodyguard in Game of Thrones, who's, who's kind of in and out of the conversations. So that was um, our key branch for this week. Please do keep sending in your questions, suggestions and theories um, for the Q Branch segment and we will try to fit them into the show. Okay, thanks a lot, Phil. So that brings us to the final part of the episode, which is the quiz. No, 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 stop getting Bond wrong! Stop getting Bond wrong! I started as the quiz master in From Russia With Love as a credits quiz and this one is also a credits quiz. All you have to do is name as many characters as you can in the main credits so we're not counting uncredited appearances this time just uh, any character any character name in the skyfall film it's very simple uh, so maybe should we uh, start with adam do you want to go first i'll say james bond correct um, i'll say silver yep i will say severin correct uh i'll say m Q. Yep. Uh, Gareth Mallory. Yep. Bill Tanner. Good old Tanner, yeah. He's there. Um, Eve Moneypenny. Yep. 
Kincaid. Yeah. The politicians were in the inquiry. It's Claire... Well, I'll give you that, Phil. You didn't get Smith. Her name was Claire Dowell, MP, but you got Claire. I think that's enough. The politician's (laughs) name. I'll give you that. That's pretty good. I will will say Patrice. Patrice, yeah, of course. The guy he's chasing at the beginning, yeah. Henchman 3. We've got Silver's henchman. We're we're, we're letting him have that. All right. Uh, I'm going to say... Old man on underground platform. We've got well, I've been generous to Phil so far, so I'll be generous yeah, to you, Adam, yeah. as well. We've got husband and wife at the tube station. I think that's I'll who you're referring that. to. The old man. Yeah, yeah. He, he's, he's he's in a hurry to get home. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, if, the thing is, again, I can't think of any other sort of principal characters' names, so I'm just going to say helicopter pilot. Uh, yeah, there is a helicopter pilot. Yeah, well done, Phil. <laughs> Can I have um woman in bar? when Bond's on his gap year. Uh, yeah, you can have Bond's lover. Yeah. I can't think of the... I, I imagine she's actually got a character name, but in the, the floating dragon casino in Macau, the the attendant that he sees with the um, the chip. Uh, yeah, there is a casino barmaid. Yeah. Can I have um man killed by Patrice? Oh, no, no, sorry. I'm going to take that back and I'm going to say Ronson. Ronson, yes. Hey. <laughs> a named character. We're back onto hey. the named characters. Well done, Adam. <laughs> I was going to say Q Branch Lab Assistant. I don't know. There's a, an MI6 technician, Phil, but for the sake of brevity nah. of this quiz, let's just over to Adam to, for the win. Yeah, just to prove I could have gone again, uh, the psychologist who does the uh, the word association quiz with Bond. Uh, yeah, he, uh, Dr. Hall. The, Dr. Uh, yeah, Hall. He's the character, yeah. So uh, that's uh, the win for you, Adam. You could have had... Hugh Edwards, who makes a cameo, the BBC <laughs> News. <laughs> he was a, he was the final named character that we didn't get. So, uh, Adam, it's over to you now for uh, what song was going to play us out. Thank you. Well, uh, Adele's song, of course, was an Oscar winner, the title track. So why don't we have the best song Oscar winner from the year before, Man or Muppet, from the film The Muppets. So uh, that's about it for this uh, episode. This is the end. Hold your breath and... Count, don't count to 10, count to seven, seven days, and we'll be up with our next episode, the final Bond film. Well, at the time of recording, the, the final official James Bond adventure. We're going to look at Spectre in our next episode. So in the meantime, do check out our social media pages on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. But uh, that's it for today. Thanks, everyone, for joining. I was Martin. I was Adam. And I was Phil. I reflect on my reflection. And I ask myself the question What's the right direction to go? I don't know Am I a man or am I a Muppet? Am I a Muppet? If I'm a Muppet, then I'm a very manly Muppet Muppet. Am I a Muppet? There goes my glorious career in espionage. That was a bit like Julian Clary, really, wasn't it? Here's your latest gadget, Mr. Bond. Guess where you stick it? That's turned into Maggie Smith now, hasn't it? Here's your latest gadget, Mr. Bond. I'll let you work out where to stick it. Up Gustav Graves behind, preferably. No, Mummy, Mummy, don't put it up there!